0: Hi everyone, and welcome to today's edition of Coffee with Innovate Finance, our weekly podcast where we speak with entrepreneurs on the front line of innovation about the future of financial services. So I'm really excited to have with me today, Doug Rie, Managing Director of UK and Europe at Bluefire AI. Now, Bluefire is really one of the most exciting FinTech companies out there right now, completely transforming digital markets. So Doug, delighted to have you with me this morning. Um, I know that you have a really interesting background uh, across financial services. You spent more than 15 years in institutional equity sales in global investment banks and have been based not only in London, but also spent quite a bit of time in Singapore and in Tokyo. And then you also had a strategic role implementing MIFID2, so a real wealth of experience in capital markets. I think to kick off our conversation, I would love to hear a bit more about Bluefire AI and what sets you apart from your competitors and what you're doing to change capital markets.
1: Great, um, so thanks a lot for having us on this week, Gene. It's, uh, it's great to, to join the podcast. Um, so just to introduce Bluefire, we are a capital markets intelligence firm. We were founded in 2016. Uh, we've got offices, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Toronto, London, and Mumbai. Um, our main focus is very specifically on, on one thing, really, uh, which is the early detection of unforeseen risk in companies. And that's uh, both on the downside and on the upside as well. And, and what we really do is, and we can talk a little bit more about the technologies we use and the methodologies and what, you know, how we do it, but that's our real goal is early detection of unforeseen risk in companies. And a lot of people use that. Uh, in the form of our main product which is called risk radar so that's a predictive risk status on companies uh, where which we've got running on over 5,000 companies including a couple of thousand in onshore China Um, and that is a predictive risk status that you can use to basically sharpen your your understanding of risk in in companies um, for banks for regulators exchanges for asset managers and um, and then some of the more strategic longer term work we do is because we can see both the down and the upside risk in companies. Um, we're very involved in some, some interesting strategic work on investment manufacturing, where what we're doing is we're helping kind of reinvent the, the production of a fund management kind of asset management investment manufacturing. So can you lower the unit cost of intelligence that's used to make funds that people invest in and to make the decisions that power investment. And there's some really, really interesting work going on in that field. But that's kind of our our core space, really, is is that that single company unforeseen risk.
0: Thanks, Doug. So so obviously, looking at the risk piece, I mean, in the face of COVID-19, but also the general evolution of financial services over the past few years, I'm curious to hear if you've seen an evolution or a change in the way that industry, government, or other stakeholders view risk.
1: I mean, it's uh, absolutely is the answer. So um, if you think about what what's going on in the risk market and what we found is uh, a lot of our clients are in the asset management space, but over the course of this lockdown, we've been, I mean, incredibly busy and we've been brought into conversations with a wide range of people, including bank commercial risk uh, and all the way up to central bank exchange, regulators, insurance companies. What we found is that the the entire market has, a couple of very clear vulnerabilities or blind spots in the way they look at risk. And you know, the way it is, right? If, if a door is, if a door never opens, I I can lean on it pretty comfortably. It's only when someone opens that door, I'm going to fall over through it. And, and when I say that, if you think about the way markets have traded for the last 10, 20 years in an environment of QE and free liquidity for companies, in terms of the way everybody thinks about things, People's risk methodologies are, they're very heavily based on beta, on companies basically being a product of their exposures to country risk or sector risk or quote unquote smart beta, their style risk, you know, growth or value or momentum. So um, everybody's built up risk systems that are very, very good at modeling those things. So looking at companies as a basket of betas. People also have developed mathematical models and, and ways of looking at risk that are pretty well defined in terms of they use the same sorts of ingredients and the same sorts of of process which is broadly speaking and not in not in everyone's case but broadly speaking very heavily reliant on market data like volatility to understand how risky a company is and usually very kind of linear mathematics where it's backwards looking at the historic risk in a company, and then using that to kind of predict how risky it will be in the future. And all of those things, there's nothing wrong with those things, that's worked really well for 10, 20 years. But the problem is, no one really needed to bother worrying about what we call like the idiosyncratic piece, like the specific company risk, that a tail event will happen, that something really unexpected will happen. And, and if you think about the headlines we're seeing right now around Wirecard, for example, Um, You know, Wirecard is not the first big high profile shock collapse to happen in a very well-owned, well-publicized company. We've had it with Steinhoff. We've had it with Thomas Cook. We've had it with Burford Capital, you know, at certain points last year. You know, Hertz has just gone bankrupt. There's been a, a repeat history of these big shock collapses in companies, and they always seem to wrong foot everybody's risk systems. And that's because the way things are set up doesn't catch like tail events, kind of mini black swans. And they're not built to do that. And that normally is fine because those things don't happen that often. But this year, COVID has really brought all of those things home to roost. And there's a load of stats and charts that show this really well. But um, I saw something that an asset manager put out at the end of April. The FTSE all share has had more Big outlier days: three, four, seven, eight, ten standard deviation days. By the start of April this year, than it would normally have in a billion years, like over a billion years. Yeah. Like, so the market is full of these tail events, and that's exposing a lot of the, the the blind spots in people's risk processes. And you know, there are other things happening in terms of the way companies are dealing with the situation that, again, just people's risk systems aren't set up to see it, and that's why we've been very busy because I think people have discovered that blind spots they were able to overlook for a long time are now a big, big problem. And and I think that's going to continue to be the theme for the rest of the year.
0: Like that's so interesting, and and shed so much light on sort of where we are in terms of dealing with, as you said, as well sort of mini black swans or what do we have coming up. I'm quite curious to also explore this conversation because, in line with the changing attitudes towards risk, uh, in light of COVID-19, I know you and I spoke about this recently. We have seen, of course, a number of larger financial institutions really ramp up their innovation programs and, and drive some of the partnerships that they're creating, particularly the asset managers the investment banks as well. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of partnering with some of the larger institutions uh, and how your experience has changed or evolved in light of COVID-19?
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think the way we see it is that banks, if you think about a bank or an asset manager, any financial firm, they really have two ways of looking at their their tech spend, their digital spend. There's kind of run the bank and there's what we call change the bank. So the strategic change work. I think what we've seen in the past is that with some exceptions, a lot of people have been spending their their digital and innovation money really on polishing their existing business model, their status quo. And what that usually is in the form of is one of two things. It's either user experience, customer acquisition, distribution, having a nice shiny front end on what they do, or it's automation and efficiency in the back end. So doing the same thing you do, but just doing it a little bit faster, a little bit cheaper, a little bit more efficiently. And we, what we do and the way we work is, it can be sometimes uh, quite a lonely space that we operate in, because what we do is some of the more uh, kind of difficult precision work where we're we're really in the nuts and bolts of, of in kind of manufacturing investment product or you know, building models that are slightly different to the existing model. And and up until COVID, I think that meant that there were a lot of people where it was it was tough going because you didn't fit neatly into a bucket of, as I said, of like a polished front end or a sort of automation of the back end. What I think people are we're seeing now is that people are really having a a long, hard look at their business models under COVID saying, well, actually, I could have a great website and customer journey in private wealth. But if it puts people in the same five funds it did before, and they don't work, what's the point? Or, you know, "If if I do all this screening, and I can calculate my VAR, and I can calculate all my exposures, but the way I'm modeling my risks in this company is wrong again what's the point so so what we're seeing is a a real like acceleration in people like being much more disciplined and honest about the way they spend their digital and innovation budgets and saying what's a nice to have and what do i actually really need to do and that that's been great for us it's been very very i mean it's been a very busy time um and i think probably from talking to other fintechs that, that we know i think people are finding the same if You know, where before there was a lot of money being spent on me Too solutions or kind of nice to haves, I think people are getting much more focused and much more structural and strategic with the way they're spending their money.
0: Great, Doug. So then from your point of view, what does the future of capital markets and fund management look like in five years or even 10 years?
1: I mean, I think it's, it, what very simply, at the minute, I think what you have in, in asset management and capital markets is, if we take asset management, because um, that's maybe more of a five to 10 year view, at the minute you have two choices. It's really, really, to oversimplify, you have two choices. You either have a passive investment, which is very cheap, but it's a blunt instrument. You don't really fully know what's in it. It's rule-based. It's got very little nuance or kind of intelligence in it but it's cheap or you have active management which is very expensive I mean it doesn't really work that well over time um, but it costs a lot of money and it's not systematic and you don't really understand why it works when it works. I think on a five-year view where I would see capital markets and asset management going is, is that you can develop something that sits in the middle of that best of both worlds where it's either adding layers of intelligence onto passive investment so that it can operate a bit more like active, or similarly, bringing technology into active, active management and automating and systemizing what it does so that it can be sold to people more accessibly at more of a passive kind of fee structure. And that's the kind of more of the five-year view. Um, on the 10-year view, what I think is fascinating for cap markets in general is the mechanism for information moving around and for price discovery on companies is still heavily reliant on human beings and a very limited number of them. And it's not scalable. And it's very, very kind of erratic. I think there's a huge amount of work technology can, can do to improve the asset, you know, asset allocation, allocation of capital pricing, risk management, the whole central kind of function of capital markets, I think is still all there to play for on a 10 year view.
0: Absolutely, Doug, and we're hearing similar sentiments echoed from across our membership base and our stakeholders as well, so very much agree with you on that front. I want to turn uh, the conversation slightly and look at uh, innovation across FS from very much an international perspective, because you and Far are quite interesting. You have a significant uh, portion of your, your company and your players are based actually in Asia with a small office here in London, uh, and expanding that outwards. You also help offshore investors access China. So, quite interested to hear what you see as some of the biggest differences between the UK and the Chinese markets in particular
1: sure so i mean it's a it's a really exciting market a really difficult one but uh, an exciting one to play in if you're a, if you're a fintech it's the main thing about it is, is it really boils down to efficiency of the market so if you look at the UK you've got really deep sophisticated pools of capital you've got loads of analysts, you've got experienced fund managers, you've got a mature financial media, you have good oversight from the regulator on companies' data, on their earnings reports, on their filings, you have good holdings data, so you know what everyone's doing. There's a real transparency and an efficiency in the way markets work. In China, you don't have any of that. So capital markets in China have only been open 20, 30 years. And you know, not only is the data not necessarily there at the same quality, but the human beings that really are the entire mechanism for information to flow to people, they just don't exist. And you can't create it quickly. There's no Wall Street, there's no City of London, and you can't create generations of experienced analysts and financial reporters overnight. So what that does is it makes it a really, really difficult market to invest in if you're an offshore investor, and a really dangerous one because As anyone knows, if they Google China corporate scandal, you'll see there's obviously been a huge number of, you know, of corporate scandals and collapses that you can get burned in. But, you know, if you think about it from our point of view, using machine intelligence to replicate that function of, of, you know, information transfer to really extract the truth about these companies, what's going on with them, it's the perfect market to do that. And that's where we, you know, we work with some, some of the world's largest asset managers and banks very specifically on China for that reason. Because if you think about the, the London Shanghai Connect as, as, you know, opened last year, there's a big push for Western money to move into Chinese bonds and stocks because it's one of the few places in the world that still offers growth and inflation and returns, but it's really, really <laughs> risky. You know, people need to do it, but they're afraid to do it. And so we're, you know, we've been very much at the heart of unlocking that ability to do it, to put the money to work in China. Um, and it's a really fascinating problem because I said, it's, it's greenfield. There, there isn't an incumbent industry there around capital markets to compete with or to disrupt. It, it, there really is nothing. You have to almost build it from scratch with pure technology.
0: That's very interesting in terms of a uh, different landscape. Now, I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on the UK, because obviously your offices primarily are based out in Asia, working on that front, but you come to the UK. Um, in terms of the support system, the ecosystem here for fintechs, for companies that are looking to scale, how do you think we're doing?
1: So, I mean, we, the first thing I think is uh, we've talked, and we've been relatively vocal about, about this when, whenever asked, I think there's, there's two states, right? There's a pre-COVID state and there's a post-COVID state. I think in terms of what the government has done since the onset of COVID, firstly, I think any company getting any government support of any sort, really the only response has to be to say thank you, because at the end of the day, this is an incredibly difficult problem. And I don't think there's any government that can deal with it perfectly. And I think that there are things that the government have done and have, that have launched that are very encouraging and that are a really good step in the right direction. I think things like the government, you know, like equity stakes for the government in promising firms is interesting. It's a good step. You know, the the innovation grants where there's much quicker kind of upfront funding and decision making that have been announced through COVID. That's great. That's a real step in the right direction. I think the the longer term backdrop before COVID. Um, and I think Jeanine, you and I have talked about this before, but the UK is slightly different to some of the other markets we work in, in one very important regard, which is that the UK doesn't do upfront funding for research. So what that means is that as a fintech, if I want to do really innovative work, if I want to build something new and strategic and, uh, you know, and really disruptive, what I basically have to do is I have to go and Maybe sell some of the company to a VC or to, you know basically take capital to pay for it, and then I might get a tax credit benefit afterwards when i 've monetized and you know and commercialized that research down the line but it 's really all on me. the risk is all on me, and the benefit at the other end is obviously shared with you know the VC who I got my money from or you know with society as a whole or the industry or the users of the product what i what i I think is a a big difference in some of the other markets that are doing this really aggressively is is the ability to get upfront funding for Mm R&D is really a game changer because it encourages the more aggressive, more kind of difficult, the more exploratory work that really is long-term game-changing for people. You know, the the kind of really, really big R&D moonshots that that you wanna be doing. And I think, that's something that I don't know if maybe state aid uh, restrictions have been an issue that stopped the UK from doing that more aggressively, or if it's a, a cultural or just a kind of legacy um, behavior. But that's the only thing about the UK that, that longer term, I think, could change. But as I said, the stuff that's been done during COVID has been, been I think, a lot of steps in the right direction.
0: Thanks, Doug, and I, I think we'll definitely be looking at pieces like that as we undertake the UK FinTech Strategic Review going forward uh, for the remainder of the year as well. Um, just as a final point, we've been talking a lot about leadership, uh, particularly in the face of a crisis like COVID-19. I would be keen to hear from you just some thoughts as to how you're helping Blue Fire really move through this crisis and helping your employees and your staffing as well.
1: Sure. So. I mean, the things that I think anyone who's working in fintech will know, it's tough, right? It is a, even before COVID, I think probably the reaction of most fintechs uh, that, that, that I know and that I speak to when COVID happened was, great, like, and now this, because, you know, it's, it is a tough tough road to travel. You know, you're, you're doing work where you are challenging a big incumbent industry or trying to work with that industry. And it, it can be very challenging and, and and hard going. When you add layers of difficulty or struggle or challenge like this, it can, you know, it can just, it can be even tougher. And I think the thing that for us, the thing that we really have always honed in on and that we always cling to and that I think, would be our advice to anyone in in a fintech right now is be really really crystal clear about what the problem is that you're trying to solve and if you really really think that you're solving a problem and you're doing it in a way that the incumbent industry can't do itself or that there aren't 10 other companies out there already doing if you're really bringing something to the to the table then you kind of stick it out and you kind of you really focus on that, on that mission. And I think you have to have a confidence that if you are solving a problem that is real for people and you're doing it in a unique way, you will persevere and you'll get through it. I think the flip side of that is that, you know, we're lucky, right? Because we do something that is very, very relevant to the current situation, which is downside risk in companies. So you can imagine our experience may be different to a company selling A CRM system or you know a a research platform so but for us it's all about focusing on that that core problem you solve and the mission you're on and staying true to that Um, and the other thing is you know I think being disciplined about the areas in which you aren't solving a problem or the areas in which you don't differentiate yourselves or maybe you're not adding something of value to the chain and if you can be really ruthlessly honest and disciplined about that that helps you and it helps you stay on mission. And then the final piece is obviously it's, it's not uh, anything to do with technology. It's just obviously taking care of your mental health. I think everyone in our company has been very, very mindful that you, know, you have to take care of yourselves and you have to take care of your teammates. But I think a lot of fintechs breed that anyway, because the experience you go through as part of the sort of founding group of a fintech unless someone else has been through it, they'll never really understand what it's like, right? It, it's, it's really like kind of like going to war together. So I think there's a real mentality of, uh, you know, of kind of compassion and care and solidarity amongst the team. And you really have to lean on that and, and kind of carry each other through because you'll take it in turns, right? Someone in the team will have a bad day or a bad week when you're not and you got to hold them up and carry them on your shoulders because next week it might be you. So I think those are the kind of the things at a a corporate level, it's all about the mission and the problem and being really ruthlessly focused on that. And then at a human level, it's just, yeah, it's just making sure you take care of your mental health and, and kind of stay, stay sound.
0: I love that, Doug. Uh, And I think that is a great sentiment for us to end the podcast on. So thank you so much for your time and and for shedding some light on a lot of the topics we discuss on the international side, on the leadership piece, and also on really the the changing face of capital markets as we see it. So thank you again. And thank you listeners for tuning in to this episode of Coffee with Innovate Finance. Uh, Do look out for our upcoming episodes. And in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn or check out our website, innovatefinance.com for more on our upcoming events and programs. Until next time, that's goodbye from me, Janine Hurt, Chief Operating Officer at Innovate Finance, and look forward to speaking with you all again soon. Bye-bye.